Good afternoon and Happy New Year. Welcome. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall and very glad you are with us today. Today it's the Midday Health Watch with Dr. Lena Wen. Rates of RSV and flu are beginning to fall, but COVID numbers are up around the country. The Maryland Health Department reported more than 1,500 new COVID cases just in the last 24 hours, and that number is almost surely an undercount. 13 people died from COVID-related diseases in our state in the past 24 hours. Lots of people are opting for masks again, but not many are opting for the bivalent booster to protect against the latest strains of the Omicron variant. Dr. Wen is with us for the hour today to talk about these and other public health issues. To join our conversation, we're at 410-662-8780. Our email is midday at wypr.org. You can tweet us at midday. WIPR. Lena Wen is one of America's most trusted and knowledgeable public health experts. She's a former health commissioner of Baltimore and an emergency physician. She teaches at the George Washington University School of Public Health. She writes a column for the Washington Post. She's a medical analyst for CNN, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and the author of a terrific book called Lifelines, A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for public health. And Dr. Wen joins us from Baltimore on Zoom. Lena, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too, Tom. It's great to have you and thank you very much for your time as always. I want to begin by asking you about a diagnosis that Maryland Congressman Jamie Raskin uh, revealed that he has received a week or two ago. He's been diagnosed with diffuse large B cell lymphoma. This is a form of cancer. Um, he says it's uh, treatable and uh, uh, he's confident about his outcome. But can you tell us um, what kind of cancer this is and, um, and, and what's your uh, understanding of uh, most patients' uh, prognosis in, in this situation? Yeah, so of course, I'm thinking about Congressman Raskin and his family during this time. Um, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma is a type of blood cancer. It is a cancer of the B-cells, which is a um, it's um, a type of the lymphocyte. And we think about lymphocytes as producing antibodies. Um, it's quite a, um, it's a form of cancer that primarily occurs in older individuals. The average age of diagnosis is usually in the 60s and 70s. Um, and it is something that has a high cure rate, as in more than half of patients with diffuse um, um, a, a large B-cell lymphoma can be cured. So we hope that um, Congressman Raskin will go through the treatments. Um, generally, the treatment is chemotherapy combined with a, mono, uh, with a monoclonal antibody. Um, uh, we hope that he'll be able to go through these treatments and experience a cure. We certainly do. And as you say, uh, our thoughts and prayers are with the congressman and his family. So uh, glad to hear that, that uh, you know, uh, more than half uh, folks who are diagnosed with this uh, are able to be cured, and we certainly hope that Congressman Raskin is among that group. So let's talk a little bit about COVID. Um, RSV uh, cases uh, that's been affecting uh, the little ones uh, around the country uh, are starting to wane. Uh, they've been waning for uh, several weeks now. Flu cases are starting to uh, tilt the right way. They're starting to go south in terms of numbers, but COVID cases are on the rise, including hospitalizations for COVID. Um, 
tell us what your take is on uh, whether this is a, a, a full-out surge. Uh, wh- what should we what should we know about uh, the the increase in COVID cases right now? Well, I think it's important to put all of this into perspective, and that perspective includes what's happening this winter. You and I have talked on your show, Tom, about this triple pandemic, if you will, the triple-demic, um, the, the confluence of RSV and flu combined with COVID. Now, the rise in RSV and the flu this year um, was much earlier than normal seasons, and the main reason is probably because of this immunity gap, the fact that few, uh, far fewer people, especially children, got RSV and the flu for the last two seasons, and m- many more people are getting it now. The major issue was hospitals becoming overwhelmed, which impacts the care not only for patients coming in with these viral illnesses, but for everything else. If people who normally would be waiting an hour or two are now waiting six or seven hours, that has impact as well. Thankfully, as you said, RSV and flu cases are coming down. We are seeing a, um, a, a rise in COVID cases again. But again, I think here it's important to put into perspective that the data that are collected for COVID probably is more um, than what we would get for other viral diseases. As in, it is true that hospitalizations with COVID are higher than before, that there is an increase in hospitalizations that involve COVID. As to whether the hospitalizations are from COVID or whether COVID happens to be a diagnosis for somebody else who's coming in with something else, um, that remains to be seen. Still, I think the bigger picture here is that you don't, ideally, you don't want to go to the hospital when the hospitals are overwhelmed. And um, I would say the main takeaway is if you are someone who is particularly vulnerable, Do what it takes to protect yourself. Around the country, only 35% of people 65 and older have received the bivalent booster dose. And that's a real problem. I mean, these are individuals at the highest rate for having severe outcomes due to COVID. Nearly nine out of 10 people dying from COVID are people 65 and older. So the people in this group, if they have not gotten their bivalent booster, should really get that as soon as possible. And everybody else needs to think about what is their own, um, how much do they want to avoid COVID. If avoiding COVID is very important to you, then wearing an N95 or equivalent mask in indoor public settings is very important. Yeah, and it's interesting. The New York Times reports that more than 94% of people over the age of 65 had their initial COVID vaccines. Um, so they had the first two, but when it comes to boosters, there's much, much less uh, of uh, an impulse to, to get boosted. So it's interesting that, that folks uh, in that cohort were, were okay uh, with the first uh, initial doses of the vaccine, but less okay by a lot uh, with getting the, the follow-up boosters. Any, any particular reason for that? What, what strikes you as the, reason, the, the reasons the, that may, may exist for that? I think there are two main reasons. One of them, um, they're both understandable, by, by the way, but one of them actually may not be untrue. <laughs> so the first reason is that there is a level of booster fatigue. Um, I see this in my patients, too, that many of them are asking, well, why do I need to get another shot? You know, I I got the shots initially when they were recommended. I got the booster when it was first recommended. But why am I getting another one? And I think there is a certain level of, well, where, how is this going to end? And what the White House has said 
um, Ashish Shah, for example, the White the White House COVID response coordinator has said is that at this point, we may be looking at an annual booster strategy for most people, as in that the COVID booster may be similar to how we think about the flu in that we don't think about the total number of doses. Nobody says, oh, this is my 37th flu vaccine that I've ever gotten in my life. What they say is, have I gotten the flu vaccine this year? The flu vaccine being updated to whatever are the circulating variants at that time. That probably is going to be how the COVID booster is going to be um, be looked at going forward. And I hope that that kind of outlook will help to overcome this booster fatigue of, well, should I just be getting this every two or three months? Obviously not. Um, maybe it's something that should be on an annual basis. I see the second reason, Tom, is actually one that's understandable, which is that the the value of the first two shots and um, and at the time that they were needed, which is before most people have had COVID, that value was really high. So I'm really glad that people got those initial two doses and that the uptake for the initial vaccine was very, was very high. The benefit of the booster, um, and especially this updated booster and frequent boosters, that may be um, um, of diminishing value. Certainly, it's of less value in somebody who recently had COVID and also um, had a number of vaccines in the past. And so, um, in a way, it's a bit justified as to why people are more hesitant to get this booster compared to the initial vaccines. But I will just remind people again that if you are somebody who is vulnerable to severe outcomes from COVID, if you're 65 and older, if you are an adult with chronic medical conditions like diabetes or obesity or chronic heart and lung diseases um, or immunocompromised, it really would benefit you to get the booster. Um, it, the booster doesn't benefit everyone equally. If you were a child or if you're a healthy young adult um, and you recently had COVID, maybe you don't need the booster. Um, and certainly it's not urgent for you, but it is urgent for those individuals who are more vulnerable to severe outcomes. Dr. Lena Wen is my guest. She's a former health commissioner of the city of Baltimore, and she's with us for the hour taking your questions about things related to public health. 410-662-8780, our email midday at wipr.org. You can tweet us at Midday WIPR. You can follow me at Tom Hall WIPR. So, Lena, tell us a little bit about the XBB.1.5 variant. You mentioned flu vaccines being uh, tailored to whatever the predominant variant of the flu uh, virus is going to be in any given year. Uh, now, just in the last week or so, uh, we're up to about 41% of new cases in the United States, according to the CDC, uh, are the COVID Omicron XBB.1.5 variant. This is uh, yet another new one. What should we know about? It? Well, um, as you said, we are seeing that this XBB.1.5 is now um, on its way to becoming the dominant variant here in the U.S. Um, the percentage, the proportion has also increased pretty dramatically. Just about a week ago, it was about 20% of all the confirmed cases um, of COVID in the U.S. It's now up to about 40% as of last Friday, probably going to be um, the, the majority of cases um, coming up. So there, the good news about this is that um, it, there's um, this. So this is another offshoot of Omicron. All the circulating variants right now are offshoots of of, of Omicron. Um, this 
um, by virtue of it out-competing the other subvariants, probably is extremely contagious, even more contagious than previous variants. Um, there is no indication, though, that it causes more severe disease compared to um, other subvariants of, uh, of of Omicron. And the vaccines that we have should still protect against severe outcomes due to um, to XBB and to other Omicron subvariants. Now, I do want to say. Um, one important thing here, which is I think that there is a misunderstanding still about what it is that the vaccines are for. Many people are saying, well, what is the purpose of getting the vaccine if I got COVID anyway? Well, we know that the vaccines are not that effective at preventing infection. And um, and especially with the um, with the new more immune evasive variants, it's not that great. If your goal is to get the vaccine in order to prevent you from ever getting COVID, it will reduce that likelihood, but it's not going to eliminate it uh, by uh, by a long stretch. And that immunity wanes pretty quickly. But the goal ultimately of vaccination is to reduce your likelihood of getting severely ill, of getting hospitalized, and of dying. And the vaccines are still good at doing that. We have a couple of people uh, asking about masking and recommendations about masking. Um, Fred asks, uh, will Dr. Wen recommend masking again? And Suzanne says, what is suggested? Should we wear masks at the gym? And if so, what type of masks? So we've talked about this before. Uh, you wrote a piece in the, uh, the Washington Post about whether or not mask mandates should return. Uh, where do you stand at this point on that issue? Yeah, so I think whether mandates, as in government, um, the government saying everybody needs to mask, uh, whether mandates return is very different from the question of should you be masking? I do not think that we should have mandates return at this point. And the reason is I think mandates need to be reserved for a the worst case scenario when there is no other option. For example, if we truly have a new variant that's causing much more severe disease that is immune evasive, um, and a lot of people are dying from, from it who are vaccinated, then I would say, okay, that may be a case for um, for mask mandates again. But as to whether people should voluntarily wear masks, again, I think that should depend on your desire to avoid COVID infection. Masks, especially high quality masks like the N95, KN95 or KF94 masks, they are very effective at preventing you from contracting COVID. Even if other people around you are not masking, one-way masking works very well if, of course, you're consistently wearing a mask. So I would say if it's extremely important to you to avoid COVID, and perhaps that's because you are on cancer treatment or you're about to see an elderly relative in a nursing home, and for that period of time, you want to be really careful, in that case, I would say wear an N95 or equivalent in all indoor settings where there are a lot of people around you. On the other hand, if you um, if you don't want to get COVID, because who wants to get COVID? But if you don't want to get COVID, um, but it's not that important to you, you could also see this as a as a um, not like an all or nothing. I think sometimes people are saying, well, either I get rid of the mask altogether or I wear it at all times. Well, there is an in between as well, which is to carry the mask with you. And maybe at the grocery store, when you're able to safely distance from other people, you don't wear a mask. Maybe at the gym where you're you are 
three people, um, you're going at 5.30 in the morning and there are tons, there's tons of space and you're not even within 20 feet of another person, you don't wear a mask. But perhaps if you are going to a grocery store and it's packed shoulder to shoulder or you're in a gym class and it's really crowded, then you put the mask on. I think that's also reasonable as well. In terms of which masks to wear, there is no reason to be wearing a cloth mask. I have said before, and I still say now that a cloth mask is basically a facial decoration. It is not doing much, at all, if, if anything, against the very contagious Omicron subvariants. A surgical mask, if that's the best that you can tolerate, is going to be better than nothing. It's going to be better than a cloth mask. But I, but in my mind, if you're going to mask, I would wear the highest quality mask that you're able to tolerate, which for most people will be an N95, KN95, or KF94 mask. Yeah, and when it comes to mask mandates. Um, again, you've written in the post that you support increased masking, but not a government-imposed mask mandate. And one of the reasons you cite is that you don't want public health officials to become like the boy who cries wolf, um, because you're looking ahead to the next pandemic, the next uh, deadly virus that may uh, you know, come on the scene uh, when there isn't a vaccine, there isn't a treatment. There, we're we're back where we were with COVID back in in March of 2020, um, and it's that that level of trust uh, with public health officials uh, that can can be eroded if if the government uh, jumps on mandates to uh, in 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 the wrong situation. That's exactly right. Public health, at the end of the day, depends on public trust. In times of crises, we are asking individuals to do things that are really hard. I mean, think about the beginning of COVID when we asked people to hunker down, to potentially lose their jobs, to shutter their businesses, to um, to um, to not see their families during the holidays. It was really hard. But those interventions would only work if people did them and if they believed in the recommendations by public health officials. And I think that those types of extreme measures like lockdowns or, or mask mandates, they really need to be reserved for when there are no other alternatives. And there is going to be a situation again, probably in our lifetimes, where we are going to need those types of, um, of non-pharmaceutical interventions happening again. Right now, we have pharmaceutical interventions. We have very effective vaccines that protect against severe disease. We have treatments, including Paxlovid, the antiviral that's heavily Underprescribed. We need to be leaning into those types of interventions, especially because we have seen that another tenet of public health is that you have to meet people where they are. And if only, I think it's only about 10% of Americans are even masking to say to everyone, now we need everybody to have a mask mandate. That doesn't really make sense. And it's going to, I fear, um, really erode public trust for when we need it again. And we'll talk a little bit more about this on the other side of a quick break. I know everybody's experience is uh, different and individual, but uh, this is a, an issue that clearly a lot of people are interested in. So we'll pick up on that when we come back with Dr. Lena Wen. She's a columnist for The Washington Post. She's a medical contributor at CNN, a public health scholar at George Washington University, and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Her latest book is called Lifelines, A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for public health. You can join us at 410-662-8780, or you can email us midday at wipr.org, and you can tweet us at midday WIPR. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us.
You're listening to your NPR News Station, 88.1 WYPR. I'm Al Waller. I'm Katherine Collinson. And I'm Mihaela Vince. In upcoming episodes of Clear Path, Your Roadmap for Life, we'll discuss ways to catch up on retirement savings and the importance of self-care. Tune in to WYPR's website and mobile app, all major podcast platforms, and transamericainstitute.org. Welcome back. It's Midday. I'm Tom Hall. By the way, coming up tomorrow on our show, an assessment of Larry Hogan's two terms as governor here in Maryland. He'll leave office on January 18th when Wes Moore will be sworn in. And tomorrow we'll talk about what Governor Hogan accomplished and what he will leave as his legacy with two reporters that have covered him and the legislature during his tenure in office. Brian Sears of the Daily Record and Pamela Wood of the Baltimore Banner will join me tomorrow on Midday. If you've just joined us today, it's the Midday Health Watch. My guest is Dr. Lena Wen, an emergency physician and visiting professor at George Washington University. She's a former health commissioner of the city of Baltimore, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and a commentator on CNN. She also has a column for the Washington Post. Her latest book is called Lifelines, A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for public health. To join us, 410-662-8780 or email midday at wypr.org. You can tweet us at midday wypr. So, Lena, again, a couple of questions about masking. There was a piece in The New Yorker uh, a few days ago about something, uh, a group that is calling themselves the People's CDC, uh, which it's described by The New Yorker as a coalition of academics, doctors, activists, and artists who believe that the government has left them to fend fend for themselves against COVID. And they believe that the CDC data and the guidelines are distorted by interests uh, that are vested in keeping people at work and keeping anxiety about the pandemic down. Um, And these are some of the same people, I think, who have been critical of your uh, stance on things like vaccine mandates and uh, masks, etc., because it's it's evolved as the as the pandemic has evolved. How do you respond to those who simply suspect that the CDC is somehow, you know, pandering to these other interests that are outside of uh, the the particular realm of public health, interest uh, of the economy in terms of having people uh, stay at work and and even keeping the general anxiety level about the pandemic down? What what do you what do you say? Oh, I have so much to say about this topic. Um, but let me start by saying that public health policy is, by its very nature, very complicated. Everything involves weighing trade-offs because good health is not just about reducing the transmission of one virus. We have to think about how um, there are, during COVID, isolation has also caused many impacts on mental health. We've seen skyrating, um, skyrocketing rates of, of overdose deaths. We've seen increased alcoholism. We've seen increasing rates of obesity. Um, we have seen huge educational disparities in children um, and um, that, that may end up affecting generations to come. These are all the types of trade-offs that need to be weighed when it comes to public health policy. Um, and what I, I read this article in the New Yorker, which I would recommend people doing, I think that what comes to mind is two things. One is how extreme positions have gotten around COVID. On the one hand, you have people who are 
anti-vax who um, do who accuse the um, the government of all kinds of conspiracy theories of of trying to kill people with vaccines. And on the other hand, you have people like this group whom one of their planks is perpetual masking. It's essentially saying we everybody needs to wear there needs to be mask mandates for an N95 in perpetuity, including in all outdoor settings, which I think for the vast majority of Americans is a pretty far out there view. I actually really worry, Tom, about groups like this, um, this one, the People CDC, because it's not that different from what you are seeing, for example, Ron DeSantis in Florida doing, um, for those who may not be aware, Governor DeSantis in Florida has asked for there to be a separate committee to be convened that directly challenges the CDC's authority. There, he's asking for this there to be a separate committee of quote-unquote experts who are going to be evaluating their own data and coming up with alternatives to the CDC guidelines. In a way, that's what this CDC, uh, this People CDC group, this extreme far left-wing group, if you will, is doing. Because they're also trying to see doubt in the CDC, in other very well-established public health authorities, and the outcome is going to be the same, which is to erode trust in public health at a time when we can least afford it. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have um, it shouldn't have good debate, um, that we should censor individuals. In fact, I'm saying quite the opposite, um, which is that we need to really come together and recognize that public health policy is really complicated and um, and that we do a disservice when we boil this down to one side versus the other, when actually there are trade-offs, none of which have good outcomes. But we are, I think we in public health are trying our best to navigate a very nuanced and complex time. We have an email from Maria who says, why is there such great variability in the death rates from COVID between nations? They're very low in Europe and as much as two to four times higher in the U.S. and Canada. So I don't know uh, whether or not Maria's uh, facts are correct in that regard. Do you know that, Lena? And uh, if so, why is there a variation between what's happening in terms of death rates in Europe as, uh, as opposed to here in North America? So I don't know the specific ratios of the deaths in certain European countries compared to ours. I will just say that there is a quite significant controversy among scientists and physicians about how we in the U.S. are counting deaths. Um, some um, There are some people who believe that um, at least half, maybe even 80 to 90 percent of deaths that are currently marked due to COVID are actually not because of COVID, but COVID happens to have been present for um, while this person was in the hospital and ended up dying. Now, I think this is going to be very difficult to sort out because COVID can be an exacerbating factor. So for example, maybe somebody is coming in with a bacterial pneumonia unrelated to COVID, um, but maybe COVID was, maybe they also had COVID and COVID could have worsened their, their pneumonia leading to their death. Or maybe somebody had um, had kidney failure um, and um, and was on dialysis and COVID worsened or um, um, their, their, their kidney failure and that's why they ended up in the hospital, ended up dying. I mean, should you attribute those cases due to COVID or not? Or what if somebody was in a 
car accident or had a heart attack and really had nothing to do with COVID, but they happened to test positive for COVID while in the hospital, that person is also going to end up with COVID on their death certificate. And so I think there's a level of overcounting that almost certainly is happening in the U.S. Um, what percentage of cases that is, I think, is up to, to debate. But I certainly think that when you look at discrepancies between countries, that's one of the main factors that here we are attributing cases due to COVID, including cases that are associated with COVID. And we actually do not do this for other viruses. So for example, we don't routinely test everybody coming to the hospital for flu or RSV or EBV or any other virus. And so I think that the numbers of incidental COVID findings will be much higher than it is for other viruses for that reason. Yeah, and then the statistics about this whole thing uh, can be really, really difficult to keep track of. I mean, today, for example, if you go on the dashboard for the Maryland Department of Health, they will list a positivity rate uh, of just under 16%. But it's probably much higher than that, uh, given the fact that those are uh, numbers that are based on the, the, the positive cases that have been reported to the Maryland Department of Health. And there are plenty of people who are testing themselves when they become symptomatic, finding they have COVID, but they're not telling anybody. They're not calling the Maryland Department of Health and saying, oh, by the way, add me to the list. So it's difficult to know um, exactly uh, where where we stand when it comes to that kind of thing. Um, we have a, a couple of phone calls that are, are going to try to get to. Let's start with Lenore, who's in Pikesville. Welcome to Midday with Dr. Wynn. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, my question is about the utility of testing at home before you get together in person with other people. Dr. Wen, I keep reading your articles saying that um, even if people have COVID but are not yet symptomatic, the test is a negative test is probably accurate because it would mean that there's not enough virus to infect other people. But my personal experience was when I had COVID, I was really sick. I had a fever. And my test was negative for a few days. And during that time, I infected my husband, even though the test was negative. So I can't square my personal experience and other people's experience like that with your explanation of, of testing beforehand. Yeah, I, I really appreciate your, your question. Um, and I also just wanted to come back to one thing that Tom had mentioned in terms of the test positivity and the number of people testing at home. I actually think that the test positivity rate is much lower than what's reported because the vast majority of tests that are done, especially for things like what Lenore is referring to, these tests for people who are getting together and don't have symptoms, but they're doing it to make sure that they're not carrying COVID into an event, the, the vast majority of those tests are going to be negative. And so I think that what's happening now is the tests that are being reported positive are confirmatory tests. Somebody has a positive test at home, they then get a PCR test. Those are the numbers that are getting reported. I think the denominator, if you will, of all tests being done is actually much higher. Oh, yeah. And the test positivity rate is going to be lower. But Lenore, to your specific question about the utility of home testing, this is not 100%. This is not an 100% protective measure. And certainly, if you are spending long periods of time with someone, as I imagine a household contact like your partner or spouse, the chances of you infecting that person, if you're, for example, sleeping in the same bed as that person, getting dinner together with that person, etc., is going to be much higher than if you have pretty casual contact um, with someone 
somebody at a drinks event have spending 10 minutes talking to someone instead of a whole night sleeping next to them. And so I think my point here is that nothing is 100%. Uh, a rapid test certainly is not going to be 100% in getting uh, in spotting everyone who could potentially be infectious. And in this case, unfortunately, it did not pick up your case prior to your spending time with, with your husband and infecting your husband. That does not mean, though, that it has no utility. And I would definitely still encourage if people really want to avoid COVID, one additional step that can be taken that helps to reduce that likelihood is taking a rapid home test as close to that gathering as possible. So don't take it two days do two days before. That's going to have no utility two days later. But if you're getting together for dinner with people, for example, at 6 p.m., take a test at 5 p.m. or 5.30 p.m. The closer it is to the get-together, the more likely it is that if it's negative, you probably don't have enough virus to be infecting other people. Is that 100%? No. Um, and serial testing is also a good idea. So for example, if people are getting together, if you have guests coming to visit and um, and you want to make sure, and you really are taking, are, you want to take a lot of precautions, you can ask your guests to take a test every day. That can also help to pick up COVID as soon as it occurs too. Ruby sends us an email. Uh, what is your advice for dining indoors for elderly people? So we've talked about this before, but let's uh, talk again about, uh, you know, the kinds of decisions that people have to make about the public gatherings they choose to be involved in. I think that people need to first assess what is their likelihood of severe outcomes due to COVID. And I think that is a difficult question to fully answer in the abstract. I would recommend that people talk to their physician and ask the following question. What is my risk due to severe outcomes from COVID compared to the flu? Now, I am not saying that COVID is equivalent to the flu. I'm not at all discounting long COVID, which is not really the case for the flu, although we do see post-viral symptoms for other viruses as well. And um, But I think it's a helpful exercise to understand what is, what is actually your risk for COVID, um, from COVID rather, if you if you get it. Is it going to be comparable to um to your um your your likelihood of severe outcomes due to flu? Because if so, I think a lot of people have already thought about how much do they want to be careful in winter months to protect themselves from the flu? If it turns out that you're not really at more risk due to COVID than compared to the flu, maybe it's okay to resume many of the activities that you've been putting off, including indoor dining. On the other hand, if COVID for some reason will particularly affect you, for example, if you are severely immunocompromised, then you want to take additional precautions, including if you're going to do indoor dining, perhaps wait until a time that's, um, that's, that the restaurant is not busy choose a restaurant with tall ceilings, good ventilation, uh, maybe see if you could be seated near an, uh, an open window, look to see whether there are air purifiers around, make sure that you leave before people sit at the tables next to you. I mean, I think that those precautions can help you have indoor dining and um, be pretty safe. But I think that the bigger question here is, how much do you really want to still avoid COVID? And I, I think that a lot of people are misunderstanding what their true risk is. Um, and, um, and that may be holding them back potentially from some of the activities that bring them joy and, and wellness for their mental health. 
Former Baltimore City Health Commissioner Dr. Lena Wen is an emergency physician. She writes a column for the Washington Post. She's a commentator on CNN. Her most recent book is called Lifelines, A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for Public Health. And we'll have more of the Midday Health Watch with Dr. Wen on the other side of a short break, 410-662-8780. To join our conversation, our email midday at wypr.org. You can tweet us at midday. WIPR. And before we go to a break, each week here on our show, it's our practice to read the names of the people who have lost their lives to violence in Baltimore City and to list their names on the Midday webpage. We do so to stand in witness to their untimely deaths and to remember their families and friends in their hour of grief. We get their names from a researcher, Ellen Worthing, from the Baltimore Sun and from the Baltimore Police Department. In 2022, 333 people lost their lives to violence in our city. That is four fewer homicides than in 2021. 688 people were injured in non-fatal shootings last year. That's 40 fewer people who were injured in shootings in 2021. So far in this young year, one person has been killed in Baltimore City. 17-year-old Deasia Garrison died yesterday. Ten of the 11 people who were victims of homicide during the last two weeks of 2022 have been identified. They are Arnold Manuel, age 60, Dominic Williams, age 36, Howard Carter, age 44, Michael Morrison, age 28, Dewan Bryant, age 50, Caleb Thompson, age 20, Darius Brockington, age 22, David Watts Jr., age 40, Dennis Johnson, age 46, and Lattimore Thompson. He was 30 years old. It's midday. I'm Tom Holm. We'll be right back. This is your public radio. 88.1 WIPR, where you're listening to Midday. And welcome back. It's Midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you've just joined us, it's the Midday Health Watch today with Dr. Lena Wen. Her latest book is called Lifelines, A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for Public Health. It's a terrific memoir and an important treatise on what public health can and should look like in the United States. Dr. Wen is a former health commissioner of Baltimore. She's a scholar at George Washington University and the Brookings Institution. She also writes a column for the Washington Post, and she's a medical analyst and commentator on CNN. To join us, 410-662-8780, our email midday at wipr.org. To tweet us, it's at midday wipr. 
So, Lena, you um, uh, thankfully, and I'm grateful for uh, setting me straight about the positivity rate. I made assumptions about the positivity rate that I shouldn't be making, and you uh, you cleared that up, and I'm grateful, as I say. Um, I want to ask you about who's dying of COVID. We're still having three or 400 deaths uh, nationally every day. Uh, we had 13 here in the state of Maryland uh, just in the last 24 hours according to the Maryland Department of Health this morning. So um, I would, I, I suppose, make an assumption that the only people still dying of COVID are those who are unvaccinated. Um, but is there a particular demographic, a particular race, a particular group of people uh, who at this point in the pandemic, three years in now, uh, are still succumbing to this, to this disease? Yeah, so you raise a very good point about um, about who are what is what are the demographics of people who are dying from COVID, and here there are a couple of caveats in the explanation. So actually, the majority of individuals dying from COVID, and quite the large majority of people dying from COVID, are people who are vaccinated. So why is that the case? That's not because, as some people have claimed, that vaccines are somehow causing people to die. Obviously, that that is not the case. But what is the case is that nearly nine out of 10 people who are dying um, from COVID, or at least with COVID on their death certificate, are individuals 65 and older. In this group, the vaccination rate is very high. It's well over 90%. And so as you have more people who are vaccinated um, in general, um, of course, you're going to also have the majority of people dying be in this group who are vaccinated as well. So that's just a that's a, a statistical issue. Um, I think the second issue that we had discussed earlier on your show, but I think is worth mentioning here too, is that um, in the process here in the U.S. does not disaggregate the individuals dying with with COVID compared to people who are dying because of COVID. And due to the um, the basically near universal testing of individuals who are severely ill and in the hospital, um, many people are being coded as, as um, or being defined as a with a diagnosis of COVID, even if that's not actually what's contributing to their death. Um, but one thing, one more thing that I want to mention here, Tom, is that and I wrote a couple of pieces in the Washington Post about this, is that um, we are at a very different point in the pandemic compared to earlier when it comes to the benefit of vaccination, which is that if you compare a vaccinated person with an unvaccinated person, of course, the vaccinated person is going to be much better protected um, compared to somebody who is unvaccinated if the unvaccinated person never had COVID. But if somebody is unvaccinated and had COVID, there are some studies that show that that person is probably as protected um, as somebody who just got two doses of the vaccine. If you got the vaccine and you got further boosters, you're better protected than the unvaccinated person. If you are uh, vaccinated and you also had COVID on top of that, that hybrid immunity probably gives you the best protection. So I add this nuance because I think it's important as we're interpreting these statistics of who is dying from COVID. I am not at all trying to minimize COVID. I think it's a very serious issue. We need far more research. We need far more investment into vaccines and treatments. I just do not want people to overestimate their own risk um, of dying from COVID and perhaps hold back on activities that otherwise are important to them. Scientific American had a piece about this uh, in the November issue, um, and they mentioned racism and discrimination still playing an outsized role 
in COVID deaths. We talked a lot about this uh, at the beginning of the pandemic and as the pandemic uh, grew in severity. I mean, reminding people that more than a million people have died of COVID just in the United States. Um, what's your take on on where things stand in terms of the racial inequity of uh, COVID serious illness and death at this point in the pandemic? I think there are serious problems with access um, and um, and information that um, that also fall along racial lines. For example, if you look at Paxlovid, the antiviral that actually is very effective at reducing the likelihood of severe illness, um, especially in older individuals, people with chronic medical illnesses, um, there are big disparities in who has access to Paxlovid and who is getting Paxlovid. Um, and so I, I think that, um, that we have seen throughout the pandemic that disparities are not new to COVID, right? Health disparities far pre uh, predated COVID, that COVID has unmasked and unveiled many of these disparities. And we've also seen that these disparities don't go away on their own. So there need to be much more intentional efforts at, for example, having vaccination clinics in underserved areas, um, in senior centers that 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 serve um, uh, Black and Hispanic and, uh, and other populations that, um, that may otherwise not have access. And there need to be concerted efforts too to getting vaccinated getting treatments to individuals who otherwise may lack access. In our last few minutes, let's see if we can sneak in a few more calls. Let's go to Karen, who's on the line in Baltimore. Welcome to Midday with Dr. Wen. Hi. Um, I'm calling because I, the federal government approved Novavax back in October, um, but it hasn't been um, available, even though it's listed on all of the websites for public health access to um, get a vaccine. And it's a vaccine that's manufactured here in Gaithersburg. And the manufacturer, when I contacted them, said that uh, they can't release it. The federal government has the right to release it, but they haven't. And anyway, it's just, it seems misleading that when you go to make an appointment to get the vaccine, that none of the locations, the public health locations or any private entities have the Novavax vaccine available. And okay, yeah. um, it seems like a good option for people who would prefer not to do the mRNA vaccines. Anyway, I don't understand what's happening with that. And yeah. I'm well, thanks, Karen. Let, let, let's uh, have Dr. Wynn respond. Do you have any uh, notion of why it is that Novavax is not available, whereas the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are? I mean, I think that the caller is right. I, I agree with you that we need to have more access to um, to Novavax. Um, there are going to be individuals who never got vaccinated um, with Pfizer, Moderna, or, or Johnson Johnson. Um, maybe would be willing to get Novavax. Um, there are also individuals who um, may have had an adverse reaction to Pfizer, Moderna, and wants to get Novavax as a booster dose. I, I agree that it should be more more readily available. I think that why it has not been is probably because of demand. Um, the demand for vaccines in general is really low. Um, and I could imagine that many pharmacies may not be stocking it because of, uh, of lack of demand. But, you know, I, I think that it's a difficult issue. I, I would advise that you, uh, for people who are seeking it, two resources to contact or to, to look to. One is the federal government's website, um, which um, which um, they, you can look up to see which pharmacies near you um, might have the Novavax vaccine. Probably you'll end up having to drive for, for a bit because the 
um, they're not re readily available, I would also contact the state health department and they can also um, perhaps help to refer you to which facilities in your area have, um, have Novavax available. Thanks for that call. We have an email from Dr. Cooper who says, why are immunocompromised people more susceptible to COVID than to flu? What do you think? I don't know that they necessarily are. So there are two issues with immunocompromise. The first is that some individuals who are immunocompromised may not mount the antibody response from getting vaccinated. So they may not have as much antibody, but there is a way to measure that. And you can contact your, your physician to see if you've developed enough antibodies. The second um, reason is people who are immunocompromised um, uh, just by virtue of maybe they have cancer and on chemotherapy, maybe they have um, another, uh, they're on other medicines that suppress their immune system they are more likely to become severely ill due to COVID, but they're also more likely to become severely ill due to the flu or RSV or any other virus as well. And so this is, again, an area where I think it's important to talk to your physician about your specific circumstance. I think that there are some individuals who think that they are at extreme high risk from COVID who actually are not. And it's important to understand what um, what your risk is and to compare it with other risks that you have already been navigating pre-COVID, including the flu. Let's go to one more caller, Susan and Frederick. We're going to give you 20 seconds to ask your question to Dr. Wen, and we'll give Dr. Wen 30 seconds to answer it. What's on your mind? Hi, thank you. I have friends and family who caught COVID recently, and you hear how contagious it is, and yet their family member did not catch it as well. How is that possible? Um, two reasons. One is that it is possible that their family members actually had it. A recent CDC study found that half of people who think that they haven't had COVID actually have. The other is that um, the household attack rate, the uh, the percentage of people in a household who also get COVID is about half. And so it is very contagious, but not every case is equally contagious. Dr. Lena Wen is a former Baltimore City Health Commissioner and the author of Lifelines, A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for Public Health. She's a columnist for The Washington Post, a commentator, a commentator on CNN, and a great friend of this show. Lena, thank you so much. Happy New Year again. Very much appreciated, as always. Thank you, Tom. That's it for us today. Coming up tomorrow, a conversation about Governor Larry Hogan's legacy as he prepares to hand power over to his successor, Governor-elect Wes Moore. Pamela Wood, who covers politics for the Baltimore Banner, and Brian Sears of The Daily Record will join me, and we'll talk about the legacy of Larry Hogan tomorrow on Midday. And up now, it's here and now. That's on the way after news at the top of the hour, so stick around. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks for being with us. I appreciate it. Have a great day. This is your public radio, 88.1 WYPR.